found a guidepost. Anybody remember a guidepost? <laughs> that my grandmother had cut out. Um, and this particular prayer is by Robert Louis Stevenson, and I thought it would work for us tonight. So instead of mine, you're going to hear a good one. <laughs> so let's pray. Lord, behold our family here assembled. We thank you for this place in which we dwell, for the love that unites us, for the peace accorded to us this day, for the hope with which we expect the morrow, for the health, the work, the food, and the bright skies that make our lives delightful, for our friends in all parts of the earth. We praise thee. Amen. Last night we talked, last week, two weeks ago rather, we talked about uh, really giving ourselves permission to, to reimagine what it would look like to, to be a, a different kind of church um, uh, by using the assets we have and really leaning more into our own personality and our own identity, learning from the church, St. Martin in the Fields, led by Sam Wells, who's the author of the book that we're studying, so he's kind of given us a scaffolding, but I'm really not just trying to talk about a church that I think is doing a good job um, and that has been able to um, outsmart uh, post-modernity or the time that we're living in. Uh, I, I really want everyone to see the kinds of ways that they thought and made changes, how receptive they were to the crises that they were encountering as opportunities uh, so that we can see the potential for our own congregation uh, in the years ahead. We already are seeing these kinds of things, I believe. I think we, we, are, uh, we are being creative and trying out new things. Uh, we are still being that kind of entrepreneurial church that people have counted on First Baptist of Asheville to be. Uh, but we really have been shaken to the foundations now by COVID, and I think this kind of book, this kind of outlook and approach to, to a reimagining church is more timely than ever. So, so that's, we kind of broke the ice last week, and one of the things I was trying to uh, give you permission to do, uh, we looked at some graphs that were really depressing <laughs> about attendance, uh, but it also we found that it actually mirrored the ways that Americans go to church for the last 30 years um, is mirrored here in our own patterns of attendance. But I was trying to say, look, uh, it's not just about us. It's not just about what's going on here. Uh, we're really in a, in a new epoch. Uh, we're going through a dramatic change uh, just in the ways that people think about reality uh, and about God. So we're called in this maelstrom, can, can we harness it? Can we harness this wind uh, and use it to our advantage? Now we talked, I introduced you to, to St. Martin in the Fields. Um, and there's the, uh, if you weren't here last time, there's the, and if you heard me talking about this strange non-stained glass portal window, there it is. Um, plays tricks on my eyes. And uh, that's, that's the inside of their sanctuary. Uh, Trafalgar Square is where St. Martin Fields is located. Just a beautiful, old, old, centuries old church. Um, and that's a concert. That's a ticketed concert. 
Uh, and that's one of the ways that they have devised, uh, again, this goes all the way back to the 80s, how to use their space for the whole community. And also to create stream, uh, revenue streams that help the poor. And so that, that's them in action. That is their crypt, uh, where the most popular cafe in London uh, resides. And that is a jazz night in the crypt. How many of you have ever been in a crypt? <laughs> I don't I have been. I don't, I don't know how I would imagine eating, eating in a crypt. Uh, the last time I was in a crypt was in the Duke Chapel crypt, just kind of a small area. And I was having my feet washed at a foot washing service on Monday, Thursday, right on top of Terry Sanford, the former governor. Um, I guess he would appreciate that. Um, he was a good guy. So, tonight we're talking about financial models. And uh, Sam Wells is going to help lead us through that, too. So, he, if you've read the book, um, so this, will, this will sound familiar. The theme for tonight is the church must shift from scarcity-based giving habits to a practical theology of abundance. So, Sam... Um, goes all the way back to the scriptures when he, when he tries to share the kinds of financial models that the church has employed throughout the centuries. And he talks about two of the most popular models were being the mendicant model. Mendicant's a nice way of saying beggar, uh, someone who makes a practice of begging. There's the mendicant model, and then there's the Acts 2 model, which I heard, I think, Dave mentioned <laughs> uh, last, uh, last week bringing up that model of a communal sharing. Uh, by the way, thank you, Tommy. Uh, fantastic leadership last week. Th thanks for stepping in <laughs> at the very last minute and leading a great discussion. Uh, I really appreciate that. And thanks to all of you for asking great questions. I, I got to hear the recording and uh, just marvel that the, the courage of the questions and the thoughtfulness behind them, um, the, just the kind of imaginative probing that we, we need and we're going to keep needing. So thank you. So there's the mendicant model, and that really took root with St. Francis of Assisi uh, and had became um, really epitomized, uh, practiced by the Franciscans. So St. Francis of Assisi was a real, uh, really interesting. But if you don't know much about him, he was very wealthy. Uh, his father uh, was a merchant um, and sold fabrics, really, you know, luxurious fabrics and things like that. And uh, as the story goes, St. Francis was working for his dad in the market, and a beggar came up and asked him for help. And uh, he sort of uh, was, he was struck by this encounter. And after uh, he got off work, he, he kind of chased the beggar down and, uh, and tried to help him. Anyway, he, long story short, um, St. Francis got in huge trouble with his dad for giving all his money away. Uh, and, but he decided, he had a vision of, of Jesus who was calling him to rebuild his church that had been in, uh, delivered to disrepair. And uh, so he really he gave up a life of wealth. And he really was a kind of a, a swaggering youth uh, living the life. He gave it all up. Um, and it was so compelling to people that uh, they followed his example. And then sort of begging became a kind of popular way of being Christian. 
Um, and so Sam says, you know, that's not really a sustainable model for, for um, the whole, the larger Christian church. Not everybody's going to do that. Um, and you can be Christian without doing that. Uh, but it was a very compelling model, and over the years it just kind of got corrupted. and uh, it, it lost its power. It lost its, its meaning that it originally had. Uh, then there's the Acts 2 model, which I think, um, and by the way, none of these models really have fallen away. Some people still do these things. Some people still give up everything, and they follow. They, they have a wealthy inheritance, and they give it away. I mean, it happens, uh, and it is really compelling, but, um, but it, it's rare. Then the Acts 2 model, uh, one of my favorites. If you remember the Acts story, what happens after uh, Peter and the disciples are accused of public drunkenness? Um, they they start you know, he start Peter starts preaching and people are listening to this story and they're compelled by it and they begin to create this new kind of community. Thousands of people are baptized according to somebody who must have been related to Baptists counting. Um, not sure about thousands, Peter. But, okay, uh, whatever you say, there was a lot of people that started getting together and creating a new kind of economy. And it was an economy of sharing, where everybody uh, sold what they owned, and they collected the proceeds, and they shared the proceeds with any that had need. Uh, this was a really um, communism before it got stained by what we think of as com communalism, if you will. Um, nobody really owned anything. Everybody had everything in common. Okay. Well, that was really practiced, epitomized, embodied by the Benedictines. St. Benedict of Nursia uh, was uh, really the, the kind of uh, author of this way of life that, in a systemic way for the church, that became uh, embedded in the church's history. Uh, St. Benedict, by the way, is the patron saint of spelunkers. <laughs> I didn't know that. Um, but people who explore caves. So there you go. Um, but this model still exists too. I, I have some close friends uh, in seminary who came back from Iraq uh, during the, the, the beginning of the second Iraq war. And they, they went there as Christian peacemaker teams. They came back to Durham and they saw, started this community where they owned the house together and they all had their kind of home jobs, but they, they compiled their, their income and, and created this little community in a, a historically disenfranchised neighborhood uh, in Durham. Uh, and they just lived there and they opened their home to neighbors and uh, had backyard barbecues and people needed help, they'd come by or they'd hang out, they'd eat dinner together. Or if somebody needed help, they would help pay a light bill or whatever they did, but, that, but it was a communal, it was really close to this kind of acts to mock well, but both of these kinds of models, Sam says, really most of the church did not practice. They didn't accept. Um, and there are other models that kind of came in uh, more recently that uh, stand out as being um, the, the kinds of paradigm, uh, paradigm models for the church's life over long periods of time. Uh, so then these really entered it after the Ref during and after the Reformation. Uh, and that was when people, there was more of a, um, there was a more, more people had the ability to make money uh, by 
through trades. Um, so what you might think of as a small business now or something like that. Or they might be wage earners who earned enough that they might have some expendable income. Um, but the benefactor model during the Reformation was where you had this kind of uh, aristocracy, you know, uh, very wealthy people. This actually existed in the early church too. Many of the benefactors were women. Uh, wealthy women made the early church uh, possible, and the, the apostles explored you know, their, their jaunts all around the known world possible. Um, but it became a kind of systemic, embedded thing, like I said, a paradigm model uh, after the Reformation, where you had these wealthy people that would make church possible. Uh, and they would build, you know, the extraordinarily wealthy people, they would build the chapels, they'd build the churches, the cathedrals. Uh, because they believed that Christianity was a good thing, and they appreciated that there were people that were willing to do that and, and live that life. They weren't necessarily going to do it, but they would fund it. So that's good. Uh, you, you have, you know, a kind of uh, a wealthy person who's just always going to swoop in at the end of the year and make the budget flat, you know, at the very least. Uh, we're $50,000 short. I'm going to call, you know, our local uh, wealthy person, and they'll fix it. <laughs> we do not have that person here. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that's, there, there's a pro there. The common there is that it, it actually, uh, you know, according to Sam's, it reinforces this class hierarchy. Uh, and it also does this. It assumes that everybody recognizes value in the church. Well, we, we don't live in that time anymore. If you have a really wealthy person, they might give to anything. They probably aren't going to give to the church. I mean, that's the world we're living in now. I mean, they might give to, you know, something with uh, climate, you know, climate change or uh, the, you know, the symphony or their alma mater, you know, the football program or whatever. Uh, they may not give, they're probably not going to give millions of dollars to the church like they would to, you know, uh, the Iron Dukes. Um, and I won't say any more about that. Uh, extortion. <clears throat> um, so, um, that's the benefactor model. Uh, and then there's the stewardship model. And that's the, that's the model that we know best. The stewardship model is the one that really uh, everybody pitches in to make the church happen, uh, everybody tithes uh, or gives what they can, uh, and that's the church budget. Uh, that's how you sustain the life of the congregation, the, the programs, the, the building needs, the salaries, uh, the missions. Uh, everybody pulls their money into this one kind of siphon, uh, and, and on the other side of that siphon, good things happen. Um, that's great, too. It's worked really well. Uh, Southern Baptists back in the day had this down to a science. Amazing. A cooperative program. Uh, just these compelling stories, inspiring people to give. And you'd have everybody from, from plumbers and car salesmen to, uh, you know, uh, wealthy uh, business leader, corporate business leaders of, of um, national companies that would pledge and, and 
give to their church, and it just worked really well. And everybody had their little box of envelopes that they got, what, was it every six months or something? I can't remember. I remember having these little boxes when I was a kid. I had in my bedroom, and, you know, I had my little, put my little dollar in, uh, either a dollar uh, or four quarters. And I would go in, and I would take my little, you know, it had the date stamped on it, and the picture of my church in the corner. I mean, this was, that's, this is the stewardship model. And that's the model that I grew up with. Probably you grew up with. You grew up with one. And it worked really well. There is a con, though. A couple of cons. One, it actually shifts power to the most affluent people in the congregation. So if you've got some, what you might call in the financial world, uh, whales who really give a lot, and if there's something that's about to go down that they don't like, well, you're in trouble. <laughs> and we know something about that. Uh, preachers know a lot about that uh, over the years. And, uh, and Sam mentions that. Um, another con, I think, is it actually places all of the concentration on what the church is doing just what the church is doing. And yes, we're doing things for others, and um, we're, we're sharing, and we're being generous, but it really is about making the church exist. I think Sam's trying to get us to think about a different kind of arrangement, um, where we're actually recognizing that these kinds of models may still work well in places, but in general, uh, they've, they've run their course, and I think they've probably run their course for congregation love. Congregations like his and ours. Um, and he says a new model is needed. And that's what his book's about. And then he gives a theology, he begins to build his theology of a new model. Uh, and it really is based on, he says the word kingdom of God a lot in the book. If you've read it. I want to give you a sense of what he means by that. Kingdom of God, I think, for Sam, is a thriving, diverse community that looks something like uh, heaven is going to look like. Um, and so you, you see in a thriving community a glimpse of what's to come for all of us eternally. We're going to have all kinds of people, all different colors of people, all different shapes and, and sizes and uh, abilities and uh, net worths, and uh, we're going to be sharing with each other uh, and loving one another, building one another up. I mean, he sees that as the, the telos, the end of history. So if we already know what that is, we can bring it into the present. And that's how I think, if I'm honoring his imagination and his explanation about that, I think that's what he might say. Uh, this is Sam. If you've never seen him preach or, or you know, looked, at, looked, looked him up online, that's him. Um, he was, he is now at St. Martin's, obviously, but he was at Duke Chapel when I was there. Aaron and I, uh, when we moved to Durham so I could go back to school, uh, we didn't have a church. We didn't know where to go. Uh, and we were kind of licking some wounds, too, frankly. And we just needed a big place to go and hide and, and just sort of blend in and sit in the back row for a while. And then we kind of sat towards the middle. And then we started sitting more uh, closer to the front because he, he was such a compelling preacher and I learned so much from him. 
So I, I'm bringing you someone's ideas that I personally trust and who, whose leadership I witnessed for two years before we had kids and joined a, a smaller congregation. Um, so he, he really is a wonderful teacher, a wonderful preacher. Uh, and what I want to do is I want to give you a glimpse of the kind of language he offers, not only to his congregation, but to those who are meeting St. Martin's Fields for the first time. Because I think a lot of what he's trying to do is the, it uh, parallels a lot of what we've been describing, what I've been preaching and trying to teach, and what we've all been about, I think, for the last several years. So I want to play you his two-minute welcome video, or his kind of invitation video that you can find on their website. I'm delighted to know you're considering joining our congregational life. St. Martin's congregation has a mission statement, being with God on the edge. The edge is the place where Jesus spent most of his time. The edge is the place at the margins where people don't have much and wonder if anyone cares about them. That's where we try to spend a lot of our time together because that's where Jesus spent most of his time. But the edge can also mean the cutting edge, the place of imagination, of growth, of discovery, of taking risks. All of those things are part of what we think of our DNA as St. Martin in the Fields. Then there's being with. Being with is really about how we spend forever. Just imagine being in heaven. There's no problems to fix. What we need to do is learn to be with God, to be with one another, to be with ourselves, and to be with God's renewed creation. Those four kinds of being with shape our life as a community at St. Martin's. And then finally, there's God. We believe the way to worship and celebrate and glorify God is to build a community together where we all bring our different qualities to the table, the communion table, and God gives us each back the same. We're not a place that takes labels terribly seriously. You can be disabled physically, you can be, have mental health difficulties, you can be a very high-powered person who works in the city. It doesn't really matter what label you bring into the building. We're interested in who you really are because God's interested in who you really are. We believe it's about bringing forth your assets and sharing those with the whole community. We can't worship God fully without you. That's why we want you to join us. Isn't that wonderful? Uh, we can't worship God without you. I mean, I think that that's precisely the kind of um, gravitational pull that I believe our congregation has and can build on. Um, it's hard to get that message out uh, when people have been damaged by Baptists. Um, or by church. And we have both those words in our name. <laughs> um, but we can learn. Uh, because I, I think what, what the invitation that he's offering is, has to do with a, a, a fourth dimension I'm going to name here. Uh, he doesn't name it in the video. He, he sort of 
explicates one of these dimensions. There's four ways of being with. But there's another way that he describes uh, really what it means to say that being at the heart of God and what, what the heart of Christian ministry is. So I've drawn this graph up here. It's a, if you're watching, listening in on the podcast, it's a four-square graph, uh, and there's four sections. And the top left section is doing four. These, these are different ways that Christians interact with, with uh, themselves and their neighbors, with God and neighbors. Um, so doing for is, we, we do things for others. We, we help them. Uh, it's a, you know, we, we send money. Uh, we, we put on the soup kitchen. Um, these are things, they're all, these are all good things. Uh, but that's doing for. Then there's being for here. Being for. Soup kitchen, what would we say? Soup kitchen is doing for. Being for is pulling for people. It's, it's signing the petition, you know. It, it's rooting for a cause. Maybe it's showing up for kind of an activist event or or maybe you're, you're supporting uh, some kind of a, of a group there with the power of your community. Um, we'll just say signing the petition. We really are hoping whatever this thing is about will come to pass and grow and, and be helpful. That's being for. Then there's uh, doing with. So, for example, uh, my, the congregation I grew up in, in a partnership with an Af two African American churches across, literally across the tracks, uh, hometown of Henderson. Great partnership. They would they would uh, get together for um, you know. A, You've probably heard of this before, or you've been a part of this before. Uh, they would get together for a joint worship service, uh, and they do some mission things together. So they do some things with each other. Um, so collaboration. Uh, we'll say interracial or something. Collaboration. Um, this church used to do that back at, I don't remember, you go way back. Uh, I think it had a, a, what was called, probably wouldn't call it this anymore, but back then it was called a Race Relations Sunday, uh, where First Baptist would get together with Nazareth First Baptist Church members and uh, on the grounds of the church, I think, and just hang out with each other, eat. I don't know what all they did, but uh, did any, anybody ever here for that? Yeah, the choirs too? Yeah? Great. Yeah, so Nazareth First Baptist Church was created out of our church. And after the Civil War, black members were not welcome here. And they left. They, land was given, and they built their own church. Thank you very much. Uh, but at least there was that interaction. So there was that's doing with. Sam says all these things are great, uh, but the real heart of the gospel is being with. And it's rooted in the very language that we're given at Christmas, God with us, Emmanuel. That's the good news. God's not just pulling for us or doing things with us. God is with us. And we are now with God forever. Uh, this is the heart, he says, of the gospel. And so you heard him uh, enumerate the four dimensions of being with in this video. There's being with God, being with neighbor, being with ourselves, and being with creation. 
These are, you can also hear echoes of this in our Via Caris all the way through. So again, we, we have a lot of similarities here. Being with is the essence of the gospel, God with us. And so Sam's talking about God giving us the abundance of the kingdom uh, to renew the poverty of the church. And this abundance we recognize by being with others, being with our community, being with, uh, being with creation, being with ourselves. I mean, these are really core principles for trying to discern what it means to live a rich, abundant Christian life. What he, is, what he has done, what he's built on, because remember this really started back in the 1980s with them, uh, they have a head start on us in terms of church, church decline. Uh, but what they recognize, that they, and actually they were facing bankruptcy. Uh, we're, we're not facing bankruptcy. That's a, not a similarity. Um, but they were facing really uh, financial insolvency. So this is a real crisis for them. They had to figure out how are we going to survive not just for the sake of survival, but how, how can we take the assets that we have, the gifts that God has given us, uh, and use them and amplify them for the benefit, not just of us, but for everyone around us. And so that's how it was renewed. That's how St. Martin in the Fields was renewed. They got scared. <laughs> because things weren't like the way they used to be. And that challenge was thrust upon them, and they did not have an option. It was a true crisis. And they used a different financial model. Not the benefactor model, not the stewardship model, not solely the mendicant model or the Acts 2 model. But a new kind of model that reimagined church as a community of hope, he says. Reimagining church and society through culture, charity, commerce, and congregational life. This is a really interesting word he throws in there, commerce. So that's the theology undergirding the new model for St. Martin the Fields. What's the theology undergirding what might look like a, a new model for our congregation? I, I want to commend the phrase that you've already heard, which is beautiful belonging. And to remind you of the theological, the scriptural imagination that's undergirding that. So if you go back uh, to Revelation 21, this is where we receive the vision of the new Jerusalem. It's coming down out of heaven uh, like a bride adorned for his husband, and the, the, the old city and the new city are fused, um, and there, there is uh, a new creation. And then St. John the Revelator is describing this new creation in terms of, uh, he really doesn't know how to describe it, but he's using beauty, uh, gemstones, gold, uh, gardens, rivers, all beautiful uh, elements of creation, um, and it's, and it, but it's a city, and it has walls. And the walls are kind of comically short. If, if you put your scholar hat on and you go into Revelation 21 and you, 
and you're measuring out um, cubits and things like that, you're, you're thinking you're going to you're going to draw up this massive wall. Uh, it's not that tall. Uh, it, it can easily be scaled by an army. Uh, it really is more of a border. It's a, it just kind of demarcates this is going to be different in here than it is over here. And the most interesting thing to me about is that the wall is full of gates. There's gates all over the place. And the gates are never, ever shut. They're always open. And furthermore, the interesting thing to me that really captivates my imagination is that people are going in and out of it. So if, we, if heaven is this new city, there's people kind of coming in and out. And they're bringing gifts. They're bringing the gifts of the nations, which the, the word nation often translated in your scripture is ethnos, ethnicities, peoples, nations. So all of the different ethnoses are coming in and out because they can. Nobody's locked the gates. It's not an exclusive community. Uh, and there's apparently some kind of gravitational pull that even like uh, the, the rulers of the ethnoses, the kings, uh, Revelation said, or, you know, the people who um, embody the tradition of wherever they're coming from, they're, they're bringing their glory in. They're bringing things they have to offer. And so the city is this kind of bustling, thriving economy of giftedness, mutuality, Welcome, exchange, thriving, beauty. That's the end of the story. <laughs> we all live happily ever after. I mean, that's how the Bible ends. It begins in a garden, and it ends with this kind of garden city. You have to use your imagination. This I believe should be the undergirding theology for our congregation's future. And any kind of new expressions uh, of thriving, of community partnerships, uh, of financial imagination, this is, this is the biblical theological scaffolding I believe we should lean into. And to, and to build our imaginations around. Because, and this is my final, my final move here. We've been talking about church decline and needing new models and how things have been working very well for the church and et cetera, et cetera, until we're blue in the face. And it's really all kind of hitting us in the face now because COVID has spread, has sped things up. But let's all just state the facts of where we are. Uh, before COVID, all of these um, all of these kinds of trends were present. COVID sped them up. It's like going through this time warp. But here's the thing: when I'm looking around the whole uh, the whole country, I'm not just looking at the church that's in decline. We're talking about all kinds of institutions. 
not being as well trusted as they were, uh, not being as well patronized as they were. Um, and, and you can go all the way from the local Lions Club and uh, the, the Masonic Lodge all the way to the federal government, at the very center of national power. It's not going well. <laughs> Sam addresses this too. Near the beginning of the book, he talks about the role of government. Uh, and to him, uh, and he has a theological rationale for this, but the role of government to him is to address deficits. That is to help us do things uh, that we couldn't do alone. Help us do things together we can't do alone. Um, it's to, to help create um, the possibility for freedom. Uh, it, it doesn't, it's not the one that provides the assets, it's the one that provides the kind of infrastructure for the thriving. That's what government can do. And he, and he mentions William Beveridge's, uh, he calls it this famous address, even though I've never heard of it. Uh, William Beveridge's famous address about the purpose of government is to address the five evils. And those five evils are ignorance, uh, we're not addressing that very well. I mean, we have a third of our country that really is living in kind of an alternate reality, and it's, it's pretty scary. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I don't place the blame on, on them. Uh, I would personally place the blame on the kind of national discourse and, and several other kinds of dynamics that are, are new to our society, like the Internet and the possibilities that makes for people to just make anything up and spread it far and wide. I mean, there's a lot of dynamics there. But ignorance, squalor, Will Willowman came in here and preached last summer. He didn't tell this story, but I remember him telling it one time. He had some uh, German students. He and his wife, Patsy, had some German students that came and lived with them for a summer. And uh, before they left, uh, Will was just asking them about their experience, and they were just kind of riding around. He's like, you know, what do you think of America? What, uh, you know, what, what are you going to take back with you? Uh, what really struck you uh, about living here? And, uh, and both of them said, the deprivation. So ignorance and squalor, want, it was across, splashed across the headlines of the Asheville Citizen Times this week, over 100, 125,000 people live in poverty, 125,000 of our neighbors live in poverty. Poverty is really hard work. Um, it's really hard to be poor. It's also very expensive to be poor. Um, disease. Is a, is a fourth evil that Beveridge mentioned. Uh, how, how is our government doing with that? We have the, the highest number of deaths in the world. And we are the richest nation in the world. And fifth is idleness. I don't even know what to do with that. Uh, my point is, we're living in a time of extreme change. It's been sped up by COVID. People are exhausted. People are losing hope. Uh, I think 100,000 people uh, died of overdoses. Was it last year? I think 100,000 people died of drug overdoses. Um, this is a really difficult 
there, there's so many things that are really hard to wrap our minds around as, as people of goodwill, as people of faith. Um, I mentioned in the sermon on Sunday about inviting people to express their frustration. Um, we're all frustrated. We all feel like we have a voice, but we feel like it's not going anywhere. Uh, there's so many things I could say right now. But there is a kind of general malaise, I think, that has settled on us. And I don't think it matters as much, really, what kind of institution that you're part of. You're, you're getting hit hard right now. The church especially. So here, what I believe that is possible here at First Asheville is to recognize that it's not just the church that needs new models. It's, it's, it's so many other kinds of institutions, government, private. But how we can harness First Baptist Church of Asheville and Asheville's gifts to dovetail into a thriving community for relationship, creativity, partnership, compassion, and joy. We have the seeds of all of that here. We've been practicing all of that kind of thing here for many years. I believe we have new opportunities coming up very soon uh, to uh, put some concrete, if you will, uh, and some new foundations in for these kinds of things to rise up all around us. We have the ability, and we have, I think, the creativity, and I also think we have the resources, even if we don't think we do, uh, to catalyze this kind of a thriving community on the northeast quadrant of downtown Asheville. So next week I'm, I'm going to talk a little bit more and flesh some of that out and talk about the theme of becoming a blessing, which is a phrase from Sam's book, becoming a blessing. Um, so I've said a lot of different things. Huh. I want to open the floor now. We've got about 15 minutes. Um, Tommy, you're going to bring up. So, open the floor. What strikes you about anything I've said? We can even stretch back to the previous weeks. If uh, you're suffering the pain of unreleased speech uh, from any of those encounters, I welcome any questions that you have. Uh, let's have a conversation. I was wondering if you could address the idea um, that um, Dr. Wells says about how this will come together, to enjoy God just as God enjoys us, and how he embodies that in the way they have, and the way they have um, resurrected, the way they do church there. Um, so I, I think if I could give an example of, out 
of something that we had hoped to do before COVID that we couldn't quite get it off the ground. Um, so that's the First Child Learning Center. So we're talking about doing for and, and being for and doing with and being with. That would cover all of, all four of the, those spaces. But the, the real genius of it and the real joy of it would be the being with part because it's a daily thing. So the First Child Learning Center was conceived uh, out of the First Child camps that the church has done for decades. Uh, and the, the idea was that just as we have uh, these auxiliary ministries called AFTA and CDC, the Child Development Center, uh, the Center for Faith and Life, we, we would have a First Shine Learning Center. We retrofitted the fourth floor uh, for this community. We got licensed through a state agency, um, and we were about to recruit families, students, uh, of who uh, young adults with special needs who have finally graduated from the kind of public school system and the resources that provides. And so this would be a day camp where they could come in the morning and uh, experience community uh, and be uh, and learn and, and enjoy each other's company. But also be it would really be a real not just a school but a real thriving community that's here every day where uh, that provides opportunities uh, for the young adults with special needs, uh, our present members with special needs, and those among us who um, have gifts for being with uh, those with special needs. Uh, and that, uh, that kind of economy, if you will, of community, of thriving, of, of mutuality, and uh, you, you begin to recognize that people with special needs are not people uh, that you have to help all the time. They actually have extraordinary gifts too. Uh, and then you actually find out that they're your teacher. So that you teach them, they teach you, and you find out, wait a minute, the kingdom of God is happening right now. Uh, there's abundant life here that I couldn't see before because I've been trained to see people with special needs in a different way. Like they lack something I, that I have. But it, with the Christian imagination, that gets turned upside down. So that's the kind of a, a, a slice of life here that, um, I mean, we have in other ways too, uh, but that was going to be a new expression of that. And I, but I also think it's, we have the potential still to do that. Uh, our, our folks who were working on it the first time are still working on it. Uh, but really, that was, we just got... And we just got shellacked by COVID at the worst possible time for a lot of different reasons. But that's one of them. But that would be an instance of, of enjoying God and enjoying one another in a way that uh, a Christian community makes possible in a unique way. Did I answer anything? <laughs> learn how, you know, and, um, and like a skill and everything, but it's the, when they associate joy with that, you become a lifelong reader, and I was just thinking we have a lot of practical things ahead, but what struck me about that phrase of um, to enjoy God just as God enjoys us, it's that whole taking delight that that joy is what's going to make everything so sustainable. 
that, that makes sense to me. That's beautiful. Any others? Thank you, Patricia. There's a handout at the yes. door. You want to say a word about that? Well, like last time, I have my outline for you in the back. I'm giving this at the end uh, just so uh, you won't be focused on the paper and we can see each other. Right. So that really gets at the, the problem of... Um, Can you repeat those four C's again? I heard congregational, I heard congregational life, commerce. Oh, yeah. Culture, charity, commerce, and congregational life. So what part of the imagination of St. Martin is to create avenues for commerce that are not exploitative. Exploitative. Um, so they're not capitalism-based or communism-based or anything. They're, they're, uh, it's, a, it's a pure form of, of giving and receiving uh, that kind of uh, undercuts um, the, the kinds of uh, incentives that, that I think you would find in the kind of secular financial model um, for that kind of model's thriving. So uh, let's just say, for example, um, the commerce that's happening at St. Martin of the Fields gives, it provides a platform for um, a different way of seeing how we can spend our money, how we can use our money, how we can take a revenue stream and not uh, extract from it exorbitant pro uh, profits or extract human um, capital uh, and treat people like cogs in a wheel, if you will, um, but to do something different uh, commercial uh, that's life-giving and, and given to a kind of uh, alternative uh, financial model, if you will. So if this would be a witness in the midst of uh, the secular financial models that are, that are beating the heck out of so many folks, uh, it stands out as something different and it actually provides a way of seeing finances, commerce done in a way that can provide uh, a model for the future. So let's say, for example, um, Christians have been doing this forever. Uh, and they've done it out of necessity. If you go all the way back to the, the early, uh, what are often called the Dark Ages, um, what were called then pagans would take their sick and dump them. They would get rid of it. And so what Christians started to see is recognize, wait a minute, every person, even the sick person, even the person who's not commercially useful, is uh, created in the image of God and have intrinsic value um, and dignity. So what we're going to do is uh, the, the, um, the monastic communities began to take them in and treat them. And they, they couldn't you know, cure them with like... Um, lots of technology, but that they took them in and gave them the medicines they had at the time. They made sure that as they were dying, they were not going to die alone. They were dying with dignity. And that kind of, a, of commerce, if you will, was, a, was the first of its kind. It never, that, that's where the, the modern day hospital began in those kinds of communities. 
Um, and now, sort of, you could argue the modern day hospital, hospital needs revisioning too, because now it's profiting off of human beings. Well, some of them are. Um, but that is the kind of uh, you know, imaginative thinking uh, that just was born out of compassion uh, that actually created a new way of thinking about human beings in the world and how we take care of each other. Uh, so in a country like the United States or um, a country like England where we live under the umbrella of finance capitalism and what some scholars would call hyper-capitalism, ha hyper where you're not really creating things, you're just actually kind of moving money around uh, and some people are making just extraordinary profits and everybody else is kind of getting left with the crumbs um, where you have, say for example, even the federal, federal government uh, charges high interest rates on student loans um, and have allowed student loan companies. Um, so in the United States, if you declare bankruptcy, uh, you can you can get rid of all your debt except for your student loan debt. <laughs> uh, it's like one of the only things you can't get rid of. Um, and that's because they passed laws to say you couldn't do it. It's not like it has, it's not like natural law. But the federal government is making tons of profits off of people who went back to school to better their life and who are now paying, trying to pay down the principal. They're paying every month. And and the principal never goes, goes down. In fact, they end up with um, owing more than they start. That's happening all around us. So what if there are places in the world that don't do that to others? What if there are communities that show that you can actually use money and, and create commerce, create revenue streams that aren't exploitative, don't take advantage of people, and after the exchange is complete, everyone is still whole. Not sure if I'm making sense. Is that okay? Any more? Should I say more? I appreciate the question. We got a couple of minutes. If you want to see an example of this, look at Church of the Savior. Yes. In, in Washington, D.C. Tell us about Church of the Savior. An example of, of this is Church of the Savior in D.C. What uh, kind of their model is uh, uh, a group of people in the, the church determine that they have interest in a particular area and uh, they uh, covenant together uh, to provide their resources and to uh, their personal resources and to look within the community where there might be yeah, other resources and then they began a, a ministry. Uh, where Sue and I worked uh, at Christ House in Washington, uh, that began with uh, uh, several uh, healthcare people who wanted to, to do uh, healthcare for homeless people. And it began with uh, a uh, mobile clinic 
where they would go and just pull up, park on the street, get out, and park benches became examining tables and whatever and uh, so forth and until someone uh, gave uh, the large amount of money to buy a building that could be renovated into uh, a facility providing health care for uh, sick homeless men, 34 bed uh, uh, facility with uh, medical staff on duty 24 hours a day and uh, so forth. But while we were there, we saw them, ex uh, we saw others, uh, things expand, and one of them was a finance uh, thing mm -hmm. where uh, they made uh, small loans to yeah. people wanting to start uh, a business or needing help to expand the business. And I know their first year, they had 98% full payback of, uh, <laughs> on those loans. Uh, uh, there, there were, I think, 43 different ministries that were going on that grew out of Church of the Savior. Thank you. Thanks, Dave. So uh, that's our time. Next week we're going to talk about becoming a blessing. We're going to get really practical. We'll start by describing how we should become more dishonest. Uh, to the tune of the dishonest manager. Um, so if you interpret that title of that parable in a different way, it's the, uh, the shrewd manager. Um, so we're talking about a shrewdness uh, and the practical ways that I've seen um, the church do this, and I think some of the practical ways we have in store for us to do this. So I, I want you to stay, stay in the pocket, and remember what I'm really overall talking about. It is like Sam for his church, a future that is bigger than the past for First Baptist Church of Asheville. So I'm excited about that. Thanks, Tommy. Thank you all. Thank you.